It's Monday, October 16th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 134 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? You hanging in? It's episode 134, and I'm very happy. I'm very delighted to say that uh, today on the show is a conversation between myself and drummer, composer, band leader, Toma Fujiwara. Let's have a listen. Maybe. People don't tell you everything when you hit a title. You have to be ready to think on your feet. He's got a new record out. It comes out this Friday. It's called Triple Double. And it's pretty, uh, it's pretty exceptional music. The piece that you hear back there is from that record. And in fact, all the music on today's show is going to be from his new record. This piece is a uh, duo for two drummers, Gerald Cleaver and Tomo Fujiwara. Masters. Today on the show, Tomo Fujiwara. Before we get into that, um, a couple things to talk about. If you haven't already, please check out the new digital download-only record that I made uh, and just put out with Mario Diaz de Leon and Toby Driver. It's uh, it's two live recordings from two concerts in the last year. I'm really proud of it. Um, we're getting ready to go in the studio to make a second record. And I think these recordings that are now up and available for download do a really good job of demonstrating uh, what the growth of this band, Blood Mist, has, has looked and sounded like. Uh, I'm really excited to make another studio record. And I think these things serve as sort of like a nice um, uh, step in between the two so you can really hear the evolution. Go to my Bandcamp to do that, jeremiahzimmerman.bandcamp.com. It's called Chaos of Memory. The band is Blood Mist. Check it out. I also want to remind you that if uh, you're enjoying this show, if you're getting something out of it, if you if you want other people to find out about it, uh, an easy way to, 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 to do that would be to rate and review it in iTunes. If you love the show, if you hate the show, uh, it helps. It, it really does. It, it helps sort of establish a stronger presence in the nebulous world of podcasts. And I got to say, uh, my friend Dan Blacksburg um, from Philadelphia has got a great new podcast. It's called Radiant Others. It's a, a klezmer podcast. You should check it out. Good shit. Okay, uh, today on the show, Toma Fujiwara, this conversation just took place two days ago. I've known Toma for a number of years. Um, you know, we're not, we're not super close. We're very friendly. Uh, and in fact, every time I, I see Toma, which is, you know, not as often as I would like, we have a really nice talk. Um, you know, last year we were seated beside each other at a wedding and we just had a blast. Um, and I, I wanted to get Toma on the show for a while seemed like a good time with this new record coming out. So I invited him over and we just had a really, really great time. Uh, sometimes I'm really busy like right now and I don't really get to spend as much time with people as I like. Um, we were sort of in and out for this interview, but I, I think today's a good one. Uh, you know, oftentimes when I finish these interviews, the person I'm interviewing, they'll say, you know, once I turn off the mics, they'll go, wait, did we even talk about music? I feel like we didn't even talk about music. 
and, and that happened with this one. Um, and I think we talked all about music. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how often we need to talk about, you know, music in technical terms for, for these conversations to be meaningful. You know, we talked a lot about uh, Toma's upbringing and it, it's a good one, man. Toma's a really, really sweet guy, very sensitive, very open, uh, very musical, and he's a hard worker. And, you know, those are my type of people. As I mentioned, he's got a new record. It comes out this Friday on Firehouse 12. It's called Triple Double. It's a double trio with Mary Halverson, Brandon Seabrook, Ralph Alessi, Taylor Hobynum, and Gerald Cleaver. If you want to see this band live uh, this Saturday, October 21st, they're going to be performing at the Edge Fest in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I don't know how many of you guys are out there, but if you are, if you're in the area, get down to the Edge Fest and uh, check out Toma's new band. If you want to find out more about Toma, go to his website. It's tomafujiwara.com. That's T-O-M-A-S-F-U-J-I-W-A-R-A, tomafujiwara.com. He stays busy. You're going to be hearing a lot from him for many years to come. And uh, I'll just say it again. I really, I really, really like Toma a lot. Tomofujiwara.com. And if you want to check out some past episodes, go to the 5049 website. Uh, up on the top, there's a, a, a separate section called Podcast Archive. A lot of the old stuff's up there. Soon it'll all be there. And that's it. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Toma Fujiwara. of what's a much bigger digital problem. Right. People kind of oversharing and people very happy to take things out of context, man. Oh, yeah. It's fucking weird, man. It's not to my liking. No. No. <laughs> I mean, and that's, you know, it's, it can also just be totally uh, inconsequential but still annoying. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't need to see pictures of quinoa salad and stuff like that we're talking about social media yeah it's the worst it's really damaged like uh, uh it's damaged a lot of things but certainly like people don't really hang anymore or answer their phone right or just do like analog hang yeah they 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 already feel like they know they've already caught up with you right yeah, it is. Do you stay in? I mean, I, you know, I, it's weird for us because I feel like if you're a musician, you're constantly out, constantly seeing people, whether it's like at a gig or. Um, but do you maintain normal friendships? Like call people up, let's go out to dinner? Yeah, I really try to do that. Yeah. And I, um, <clears throat> I try to not get a feeling of being in touch with people or staying in touch with people through social media. Right. So by kind of limiting my exposure to that i really have these genuine feelings of like oh what what's up with so and so yeah and instead of very easily just going to their social media page and oh they did this and they did this mm -hmm. and they're feeling this today and they ate this and yeah <laughs> they went here i i have to call them up and say well let's let's hang or if we, or if we don't live in the same place then we you know have a phone conversation yeah you know and catch up and I have real anxiety about phone calls now, and I think I'm not the only one. Yeah, there was because um, we're not we're we, we're out of practice. Well, <laughs> I've always had a thing. Whenever I see a phone call from someone in my family, I get terrified. 
<laughs> and what I mean by that is like I'm certain that they're calling with some like really bad news. Mm. So I stare at the phone, usually decide to not answer it, and then I won't check the message oh. for a while, and it just let it eat at me. Hmm. I mean, I, I talk to my mother and my stepfather very regularly. You're close so, to your mom. Yes. I think I met her, I met her one time. Yeah, I'm sure you did. I did, I, at a gig or something. Yeah, yeah, she comes to, to a lot of, her yeah. and my stepfather come very to a supportive. lot of shows. Yes. And she's very, from France. She's French, yeah. And you speak French? Not fluently. But you've spent enough time. Mm, well, what was the rest of the question? I in France, I mean, you've spent a considerable amount of time. There. Yeah, no, no, no extended periods of time to kind of get the full immersion type thing happening. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I've been there quite a bit. Do you feel culturally French? Uh, not when I'm there. <laughs> well, I think as a culture, they tend to be pretty good at making you not feel like you're one of them. Yes, they're very good at that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the shock and horror when I say, yeah, I'm, I'm French. I'm half French. No, you're not. But, um, but no question mark or no period? Um, like they're No exclamation know. point. <laughs> <laughs> Three exclamation points. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like Japanese people are kind of like that, too. Um, well, uh, so I'll, I'll say this. So generally speaking, when I see my Japanese family in Japan and I speak some Japanese, they are very impressed and encouraging. Uh -huh. And generally speaking, when I am in France and see my French family and try some French, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, you don't need to do that. Like, that, that's enough of that. <laughs> like, if you say something in Japanese to your Japanese family, they will respond in Japanese. Yeah. And if yeah. you say something in French to your French family, <laughs> I mean, they, they, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll maybe try a little bit, but for the most part, it'll kind of get steered. Yeah. To to English, if if it's someone in my family who can speak it's some English. It's it's so it's so like not a stereotypically American thing. Like Angie, my wife is, mm -hmm. you know, her parents are both from Korea, and I didn't really realize this uh, until I kind of got to know them better and had a little more interaction with Korean culture. Korean culture is not a culture that's like looking to bring people in. Mm. It's they're, they're not looking to share their 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 secrets with people, you know. And like mm -hmm. as an American, that's kind of a foreign thing. Like Americans mm -hmm. tend to you know, want to share everything about themselves. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, for me, it was a little bit unique because I was, you know, born here. In Massachusetts. In in Massachusetts. And, um, <clears throat> you know, being the son of a Japanese father and a French mother, you know, they... Um, they were, you know, it's kind of like what you get from your parents and then what you get from the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. um, because they had moved to the States and so they were... They moved here as a couple? They moved here, they they met here as exchange students uh -huh. and then went back to their respective countries and then moved here to settle to be together. Yeah. Um, and so it's a very different uh experience getting um what am i trying to say kind of dealing with the french and japanese sides of things through my parents and mm -hmm. then through the rest of the family mm -hmm. and uh you know it's hard to generalize you know i have 
you know, cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents. And, and each one kind of had their, I had a different, I have a different relationship mm-hmm. with each one of them. And with some, it's, it's more engaging and, and welcoming. And with others, it's a little bit like, you know, let's, let's be polite, let's be cordial, but there's not going to really be a, a deep connection. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I mean, I can, I can make maybe, you know, make cultural generalizations, but I, usually try to keep it kind of specific to certain people mm-hmm. you know so yeah, yeah yeah, yeah. so you have these connections with certain people and with others you don't and in this case they happen to be family right it's know? tricky i mean i grew up one of my parents is an immigrant um and i had like a real self-consciousness around it growing up like people would say oh man, your dad has such a, a thick accent i i never i i didn't notice that my dad had an accent until mm-hmm. i was like a teenager mm-hmm. he's got a really thick accent and i was always really self-aware about like um, like foods and like mm-hmm. cultural things that I grew up with that I knew were sort of different from other kids. Right. And however it's worked out, every girlfriend I've ever had, my including my wife, like mm-hmm. have been the children of immigrants. Huh. I think there's something about growing up with something with you just know that your background is kind of fractured or scattered somehow. Right. Oh, huh, that's interesting. I mean, for you, I don't know. Like you, you're the son of two immigrants, mm-hmm. but two completely different cultures. Yeah. That, See, I never, I never thought that my, <clears throat> I never felt like my experience was particularly unique mm-hmm. until someone kind of points it out, as I just did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, or, or I mean, you know, or you'll you'll have these you'll have these moments where you kind of someone makes it apparent that you're maybe different mm-hmm. in some kind of way. But, um, you know, for me growing up, I guess I just thought that was what everyone's experience was that yeah. like everyone had people in their lives from all over. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess that's kind of, naive but that was how i was as a kid you know it's like oh my dad's from japan and my mother's from france and then my stepfather who i grew up with is from iran and right i forgot then, about that yeah part and so it's just kind of like yeah i mean i mean Fucking united nations it, it, it was you know like to me that's the same it's just like oh yeah my my dad grew up in uh you know, Boise and my uh-huh. mom grew up in uh, Flint. And then it's like, to me, it's to say, yeah, like yeah, stepfather's yeah, yeah. in Tehran. And, you know, like, <laughs> right. I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that that's different in any kind but of you, way. You grew up in, in Boston? Yeah, I was, I grew up primarily in Cambridge. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Cambridge, it, it, from my perception, Cambridge seems a little, little bit hipper, more progressive. In general, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, Boston has its areas. Cambridge has its areas. Um, but I feel like Boston is the kind of place that likes pointing out your differences and sort of <laughs> – by that, I mean there's a lot of racists there. <laughs> it gets that – you know, when I, when I say I'm from Boston, more often than not, there's kind of like raised eyebrows. And, and, right. And, uh, you know, I, I guess – I mean, I, 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 I'm not – I certainly see what's out there and I see the experiences people have. I can – and I can – but I can only speak from experience in that, you know, for the most part – I grew up um, in a pretty diverse environment yeah. and a pretty open environment mm-hmm. with a fair number of exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never, you know, when I when I did deal with with some bullshit, I never put it on like a, 
a bigger uh, a bigger energy or right. a bigger force out there. I, right, I, right. It was it was I happened to encounter someone that was ignorant or for whatever reason trying to say something hurtful. Right. And and I never even even at a young age I never I never really put that on a certain type of person or a certain area or, yeah. you know so so I, I dealt with that and i never you know I, my feeling and again this might have been naive but i felt like a lot of people i knew dealt with that from time to time mm-hmm. um so you know like especially you know being half asian that, that you know it's like you know karate or like right you know you're you can you see out of your eyes or so slanted or whatever yeah, 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 <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah. you know but i never i never was there for like oh well the person the people that fit your description they must all be this way it's right. just kind of like okay well you're you, you have some issues that yeah uh that unfortunately are being directed at me in this moment <laughs> and so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to deal with that but but i didn't therefore say oh well you know everybody quote unquote like you is is that way yeah um and so you know and especially especially in you know in today's world it's i mean boston and cambridge is certainly i mean obviously there's a lot of very smart people there uh between wicked smart smart. (laughs) but it's it's definitely big enough and 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 interesting enough of a place that the very least someone growing up has access to a world beyond their immediate circumstance and can see that there is a lot available to you once you begin to create your own life. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. You know, and, and, you know, Cambridge only has one public high school mm-hmm. and it's actually, as far as public schools go, uh, pretty strong. So it was, there. a lot of people went there. A lot of people that had the means to maybe go to a private school still went there because it was good education and a really uh diverse environment Mm -hmm. and so that was i mean still to this day even having lived in new york since i was 17 it's still you've been here that long yeah would you graduate high school early i was i'm just young for my grade and i was i was here graduating june and i was here in august right so did your i feel like did you, were your parents, I, I have, I'm assuming that your mom was very encouraging of exploring a lot of things as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was very supportive and she really, you know, I, I would say that her approach to um, parenting was to encourage like a very well-rounded and balanced yeah. experience. So, um, you know, academics were important, but not not just in getting the grades, but in really kind of understanding what you were studying and, um, but also, you know, also a lot of cultural things and, and mm-hmm. the arts and, and, you know, I just got into drumming kind of on my own. Did they take you to see music? Yeah, we would go, we would go to some concerts and it, it was it wasn't like a super arty household. Sure. But, um, yeah, from time to time. You know, I mean, but I, no one in my family is an artist, right. so it wasn't. You know, I didn't grow up like going to my dad's gigs or. Sure, or, but you know, I, like, I feel like I, I'm, I'm assuming our parents are around the same age. My mom's mm-hmm. seventy. Yeah, my mom just turned seventy. What year is it? She just turned seventy-two. I almost feel like we might be the last generation mm-hmm. to be raised by people 
who were brought up in a way that was more consistent with people. How can I say this? Like my mom grew up with a piano in her house. No mm-hmm. one in her family is a musician, mm-hmm. but you grew up with a piano in her house. Mm-hmm. We were, uh, we, she, even though we had no money growing up, her policy was you couldn't sit around all summer. You had to do something every summer, go to summer camp, go visit a relative. Um, something uh there there was just there was a lot of emphasis on things like eating dinner together yeah discussing things um and just i, I never just, realized that that was it's a real so rare to 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 inspire so intellectual that. curiosity yeah. in children and i'm not saying people today suck but <laughs> i mean I, I i do think that to be true it should be the name of this episode <laughs> people, I do, today, people today are pretty shitty but i you know for as much grief as i give my mom right. all the fucking time right uh any time you know, anytime I was interested in something as a kid, you know, photography or playing an instrument, she figured out a way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mean it was a big fancy thing. You know, it might be a pawn shop guitar or a borrowed camera. Right. She figured out a way to make it happen, and I, I feel like that's kind of how people just used to be raised. I hope they still are. I don't know. Yeah, I. I mean, I can only, you know, speak from experience, and I, I just, you know, I heard this one record that was in a crate of i guess my mom's records and it was rich versus roach and it was oh shit it was drumming and then i wanted to do that so that's it i want that and i said i want to do that so she you know she did her best she asked around for a drum teacher and i you know started taking some lessons and did she get you a drum set no i i uh i practiced i was my other passion at that time was basketball Mm -hmm. and I think that, that still is a passion. It I'm still is a passion. Yeah. But I don't play much anymore, sadly. Uh, and, you know, the basketball is is a good bouncy surface for practicing. So I practiced, yeah. I, I used that as my practice pad for several years. The ball itself. The ball itself. The ball itself. And for my bass drum, we had talk about french so some caviar tits some no so some some visit to france some family member had played a trick on some other family member that when the cheese came out it was this fake piece of brie that was actually not like a whoopee cushion but kind of like those um squeak toys that you give like a dog or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so so it was like oh well you know we'll wait until they cut into it and they cut into it and made that squeaky sound so it, was it was like a prank it was a yeah. prank so somehow we ended up with this fake squeaky piece of brie mm-hmm. and i would put that under my foot and use that as my bass drum like to practice <laughs> coordination <laughs> so that was, that was my that was my first kit was like a basketball snare drum and squeaky brie for the my brie bass drum. had a, a a more bassy resonance than no the, no no it was uh, very high it was like you, you should have mighty flipped it well I mean, but the but the brie wasn't wasn't uh wasn't bouncy like a pad you didn't it fuck was, with pots and pans no buckets uh no i should have yeah buckets sound pretty good no i i just <laughs> i think i i think i had like a coffee can maybe yeah. later on yeah, yeah 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 but um no i wasn't super resourceful in that way I had, right i had my cheese my squeaky cheese and my basketball and i would practice <laughs> stick control but and, you were taking lessons like and there I was, was a guy explaining what stick control is yeah there was a woman named joyce coffin and she uh she was a friend you know this is like before craigslist and all that stuff yeah. so, so i my mom's just asking friends of friends sure. and uh joyce taught out of uh an office nearby 
and she was great because she um it was it, they were drum lessons but she was teaching me about music so there was a piano in her studio and i think she had a yeah she had a bass and so she would just she would also have me like sit at the piano and understand what a piano was mm -hmm. and, and play the keys and she had me writing songs yeah immediately like she would teach you a chord and then say, "Oh, it wasn't even." A, I mean, I would just write some lyrics. Like the f first song I wrote the, it was called "Oops." I did it again. Did you know? <laughs> yeah. And then Britney bought it, and, <laughs> and here and I am. The rest now. is history. Yeah. <laughs> we are. Uh, no, it was just called "Oops." Right. Well, I guess hers is "Oops" and then parentheses. I did it again. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I should. Hmm. You should you should maybe talk to some people there's, see if you can get something? Some, out. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the lyrics weren't the same. Right. They weren't. They weren't that. on the same level of depth. I think they were deeper. Yeah. I got to be honest, man. I've never had an issue with Britney Spears. Like, I'm kind of, it, it's, you know, especially when you hold it up to the light of, like, everything that's happened since. Like, it's, it's not the worst thing. You should, uh. You, talk to Trevor about you that? You should talk to Trevor I've about, talked to Trevor yeah. about that uh, at length. Okay. All right. <laughs> we're both, he's, he's a little more than okay with Britney Spears. Yeah. I would say he's yeah. very, 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 very okay. He's very. With her as an artist and, and performer. As a presence, as a, yeah, uh, an a impresario. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so you, you, you were attracted to fucking, to jazz music before any, like... No. Yeah. No. No. I mean, Rich versus Roach, uh, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know that that was jazz. I just, you know, I don't know. If Is that just drums? Or there's, there's No, it's, it's their bands. It's uh -huh. like a kind of a drum battle record right um and i don't know if you've seen the cover but it's they're both sitting at drum sets facing each other in these dueling poses and um it just looked so cool so i just i just put it on you know put the record on and they're just trading drum solos and were you able to distinguish who was playing what uh after the fact right you know what what stands out to me is is Max Roach was playing all of this crazy stuff on the hi hat. It was all this you know drummy stuff flying around the drums, right. and then he would take these extended solos on the hi hat. Which later I learned, you know, he would he would he had pieces just for the hi hat, and he would do you know part of his concert. He would take the the hi hat to the front of the stage and and do pieces on just the hi hat. But at the time, it was just this. Crazy sound. sound, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, if the cover hadn't been what it was, I might not have even known. I mean, I would have known there were drums, but right. I might have not known if there were hand drums or like multiple drummers playing. You know, I just I saw Isn't that the cover. Crazy? You ever think think like you're saying it, but do you ever think about that? Like the time in your life where someone could have played like you know a, a trombone for you, and you would have right. been like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, is that crazy? Yeah, I didn't know what the other instruments were. Yeah. I I mean, I didn't know what I was Saxophone. listening to. Yeah, I didn't know, but I was like, "Well, this sounds like what those two instruments on the cover look like," <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, and I and I think it's only two people playing them because they're only two people on the cover. So right. I want to do that, and uh, yeah. And so then I was taking lessons with Joyce, and she was teaching me drums, but also teaching me about music in general and uh and i was practicing on my basketball and my squeaky were you cheese. listening to music for enjoying oh right so you were asking about yeah. jazz no i had no interest in jazz i didn't know that that record i listened to was jazz i was interested in the you know mostly 
pretty questionable pop music. Pop music. Of of that, you know, like whatever Jada was on Jackson. the radio. radio. Um, this would have been what, like? So this would have been... 90. This would have been... I was... This would have been like the mid-80s. Right. And, uh, you know, so I was I was really into like Thriller. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess Madonna had just... She's just blown up. Come yeah. out and like, you know, they just started doing music videos. So yeah, it was just whatever my my friends were listening. And I'm I'm an only child, so I also didn't have like the older sibling with right. like the cool turn you on to shit. Yeah. So it was just yeah, I still remember and uh I get so excited, like still when I think about this. You remember like when I mean, I guess it probably might not have been as exciting if you didn't have siblings, but like when it was known that Michael Jack, they were going to premiere a new Michael Jackson video. Oh yeah! Like we would get ready for it. I saw it the was, premiere. What was it? Black or white? Where he like totally destroys that car, car yeah. and then they took that out of the video. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I saw that. Like, I remember. I watching. was ready. Like, yeah, yeah. Like that was there was, that a was must see TV controversy over that, and he like goes to town on that car. And yeah. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then when I saw it on regular MTV rotation, I was like, what happened to that whole scene with the car? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, every Michael Jackson, all of those Michael Jackson videos, there's like the extended version. They're all like, there's like a 20, 30 minute version of all of them. Right. (laughs) But that they took out to never be seen again. I mean, probably maybe now they've put it in some. I wonder, you know, it's funny. I haven't even thought about this. I wonder how much of that is about, because that would have been like 91. Uh Uh-huh. Which was like right around the time of people in the United States actually becoming aware of the fact that like black people get treated a little differently by the police, hmm. you know, maybe a, a little bit. Yeah, I don't because he had like a he had like a crowbar or like yeah. a wrench or something, yeah, yeah. and he just was he just destroyed the, the car. Yeah, yeah. So I was called black or white. Right. Yeah, that was also the beginning of the end for Michael, though musically. Hmm. This is a whole other... Started getting pretty whack after that. <laughs> Do you think he did that shit? The oh, kids? God. He did. I mean, I hate to say that, but like he did. It doesn't make Thriller any less no of an comment. amazing no, I contribution. Mean, it's, it's, you know, the, you know the, the, the body of work is indisputable. Yeah. And, and for me, Thriller and that... I mean, I had that tape and those videos and looking back on them, like not just the music, but what that did um, for my imagination too. Yeah, the whole you know, it presentation. It wasn't just the music, but it was like a style and yeah. like, you know, just, it was just so cool. I mean, obviously the dancing, but then just mm-hmm. the imagery and yeah, it just... It was like a whole, a whole, you know, new creative world. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get to that question that you know about about music, so it was, it was really, it was really whatever music I was listening to with my friends, mm-hmm. and you know, like, I mean, like whatever whatever music like girls were listening to, I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn to play that <laughs> drum beat, right? <laughs> I mean. Like I remember, I remember specifically like having a girl over and playing drums to uh, Aerosmith's uh, "Angel." It's like a total mm-hmm. like cheesy yeah. rock ballad, right. ballad. Like you know, not a very good song, but like, but drums. I mean, but like the girls in whatever grade I was in, you know, in 
fourth, fifth grade, whatever grade that we're, we're into it. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to learn this. But how do and then you... we're going to be hanging out and be like, hey, you know, at that point I had a drum set. I was like, but I mean, drums, like a really good friend of mine told me this story about, uh, he got, he got his first kiss mm-hmm. because he p- could play, um, don't stop believing by journey on the piano. Mm-hmm. So he's playing the melody, you know? Right. But with drums, how are you like, oh, check this out. This is the beat from, uh, from, Oh, beat I would it. just, I would just put it on, you know, like put it on my tape player and then play along with it and crank it up and I'd play right. along to it. And if I was really slick, I might like lip sync a little bit. That's slick. That's good shit. <laughs> I try to pull that off. And like, you know, I'm sure it sounded terrible, but I mean. Sure. But at, at some point, though, you realize that musicality is important and that, you know, it's a musician's job to, you know, that you want to get deeper into what, what the mechanic, you know, what it is. Yeah. I think I always like appreciated musicality. I just probably thought I was musical way before I actually was. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I was playing Angel and being like, oh, this is not music. Like, I thought I was musical as shit. I mean, (laughs) arguably it is. Oh, you were right. right. I I thought I was like really like putting it down. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, okay, I don't, you know. Right. My drumsticks are red, so that, you know. So who were the first drummers that you're like, fuck, that's it, that's the guy? Um... I never really focused on the drummers. and I mean, you know, like, uh, like I think for me what was a really important album was, um, I think I was into Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. You know, they're also a band from Boston, but I was into Aerosmith. Right. And then they did that song with Run DMC. Yeah, Walk This Way. And, and then, so that, so that, uh, Run DMC album Raising Hell every song on there I loved it mm-hmm. and I tried and I tried to play along to the videos obviously and um, but actual drummers actual actually focusing on drummers that didn't happen until later until yeah. I got into jazz and like you know went through my phases with, with all the greats right but I was never I was never into like I mean, you know, like, God, uh, like when Poison, not the Belle DeVoe song, but the actual hair band Poison. My first tape. Is Poison. Was open up and say, ah. Oh, yeah. That was my oh, yeah. first. So Ricky Rocket, yeah, you know, he, he had some he had some tricks in those <laughs> videos. Moved. <laughs> so I would try to emulate them. But, I, but even at that age, I, I knew, no offense to the Ricky Rocket fans out there, but I knew that Ricky Rocket wasn't like He's killing. Forced. Right. But but you know who was? It was cool. Was the fucking homie from um from GNR, Steve? Oh yeah. What the fuck? Well, I, that guy's like a real. Was, yeah, I. So like, what's his name? Man, Steve Winslow or something? Or no, that's the dude from uh, Family Matters. Um, <laughs> but but you know what I'm saying? Like he's like a real drummer. Yeah, there were. I mean, there were definitely bands that had like real drummers. But I think yeah. at that point, you know, for me, it was more about like the song and how it connected to you know my personal experience yeah. with my friends and you know and and in some ways I'm still like that with music I mean it has to be for me to really stay with a song or an album for a while it has to be really connected to um a personal experience mm-hmm. or a personal connection to it I mean I can acknowledge that stuff out there is is really great and and 
um, really creative. But for 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 it to go beyond appreciated on that level, there has to be some kind of connection to yeah. you know my experience with it. So at that age, you know when these songs and these videos and listening to them with your friends and you know like yeah like i said like learning how to play one and like mm-hmm. playing you know having your like your friends there watching you play along to a tape like that that really connect way beyond whether or not right the song is actually good because most of them weren't i mean I, I, raising hell is a that's an that still holds up. Album. Yes. I mean, actually, you know, I'll just say for a second. Like, I remember when that was happening, and I still like when I I was I was listening to Run MC that night. I was listening to that song Sucker MCs. I still hear the edge that I heard then. Like yeah. as a kid, I was like you know six years old or something when it came out. I, I, we'd come in New York City. I could hear it coming out of people's cars, and I was like, right. "What the fuck is that? Yeah. It's incredible!" You know, yeah. that 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 edge is there. It's not nostalgia. It's not just that like people hadn't heard it before. It's like some real shit. Yeah. No, it's one hundred percent of classic. Yeah. And that and that for me got me into hip hop, which in some ways um got me into jazz because I wanted to know what all the samples were. So you were aware that they were constructing this music by taking pre recorded music? Yeah. And how so did I, you figure that out? Uh because I would read everything on the liner notes right so there was just like yeah if you bought a hip-hop album at the time the liner notes were like they had to the, the size of the phone book because yep. there was all this like licensing shit yep and yeah so I, and i would go and check that stuff out and that's kind of been you know later on when i got really into jazz but that's how you find people like bernard purdy yeah yeah i mean that's how I, I i didn't know i didn't hear the the funky drummer breakbeat like from james brown right i heard it on half the hip hop I was listening to album ever. I'm like what is this and yeah. then you go back and then now I'm super into James Brown and then you get into all that stuff so mm-hmm. and that and that's how I got into a lot of stuff there was like a, a I think it was a Tribe album that had a Milt Jackson sample mm-hmm. and I was like what and that's how I not only got into Milt Jackson but that was that kind of started my interest in, in the vibraphone because mm-hmm. it was such a cool I knew it wasn't a keyboard and it had this like really shimmering sound to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really cool. It's the coolest instrument. I was like, Milt Jackson, what, what, who's that? Yeah. You know, so then, I mean, like literally then I like bought a bunch of modern jazz quartet I mean, that shit is like all you need. Yeah. In some ways. Like if I think about like if I had to like grab just a few things to go to my desert island with me. Like there's certain groups that like I don't I might not even ever really listen to them very often. Mm-hmm. Like that's what's going with me, you know. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you find there's enough in that music to to unpack for quite a while. Yep, yep. And um, yeah, so that that was through 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 the the samples and kind of checking out where those came from. But for, but for me, a lot a lot of my like how I've gotten into different kinds of music is from liner notes. You yeah. know, late, later on, you know, a big a big factor in deciding to come to New York is reading all these like Blue Note and Prestige liner notes. Uh-huh. And like all this stuff was made in New York City. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. You, you know, they, there's like a little story about the album and the band and the songs and and where you know, and it, it'll say like Freddie Hubbard born in Indianapolis. Moved to New York and I'm like okay, Jackie, Jackie McLean yeah. moved to and you're like reading it like 
Okay, recorded in, well, I guess most of them were recorded in New Jersey. But, you know, it's like, right. and you're reading about 52nd Street and all these Well, you start, you start realizing that there's all these, like, uh, there's, there's a mysticism, not mysticism, there's like a, there's, 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 you start seeing names like Rudy Van Gelder and you're like, right. okay, this is an important name and I'm not exactly sure how, but there's a mythology around it. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it was, you could, you could kind of maintain this, this, um, you know, your imagination could really flow in terms of how you were perceiving this music that you loved because you couldn't just get on Google mm -hmm. and, like, get all the nitty-gritty facts about, you know, it could just be this beautiful music that was created in this mystical place. And, right. you know, maybe one day when you got old enough, you could go there and, so, like, find those magical people. And it was really, it was really but there, great. The, the, but that's the thing, especially if you're into, like, jazz music or, you know, creative, improvised music, you know, whatever you want to call this shit, like, they're here. Right. Like, if you show up in New York with an instrument and, like, are truly dedicated to, like, playing and being part of it, pretty quickly you're going to have access, at the very least, just, like, going up to someone like Paul Motion at the Vanguard right. and saying, hey, man, you know, your work's really important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you'll have a drink with him. Yeah. Or maybe he'll invite you over for a lesson or something. Yeah. So you came here in what year? 94. It's a different time. Yes. You went to music school? Yes. Where? Will not say. Is it a newer school? Will not say. All right. <laughs> so do you, you didn't have, have a good time at music school? Uh, No, I did not. Why? Ooh. How much time do you got? <laughs> Quite a while. <laughs> I got a clock on. Um, how do I? How do I give a condensed version of? Give it? me the full version. I mean, or, or what? Well, I, I mean, it's kind of one of those things. Like it's it's a big circle. So where does where does the problem start? Like what what originates mm -hmm. the problem? But you know, you have great great musicians um who have created this music that we love that mm -hmm. are <clears throat> not being treated appropriately and compensated appropriately and they're not happy about that and they're kind of taking it out on students who are very open and eager to learn mm -hmm. um you have an environment that's i mean it's a little bit of a of a farce when you think about a music school and the number sure. of people that are going to leave with actual employment in the field that they are studying and so you sure. have to you have to kind of find a way to 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 you know keep keep that illusion going or else you're not going to have people enrolling mm -hmm. so there's a, there's a little smoke and mirrors in that way um and you know, there's a. I think there's a certain responsibility to, to kind of uh, nurture creativity and experimentation, while at the same time teaching certain kind of basic foundational skills. Mm -hmm. You know, for your craft, and um, at least in my experience, neither one of those things were really taken seriously or fully realized. It was kind of a half-ass approach to both yeah um so yeah so i felt like i was in a place that was very negative that was um 
neither supportive nor yeah. particularly, um, you know, an institution of higher learning of like real uh, craft building. Uh-huh. So it's it's yeah, and and was there competitiveness as well? I mean, there was a competitiveness, but I I don't think that that's an issue. I mean, I think it's fine for students to come in there and be be hungry and 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 sure some some are going to not be particularly cool about it right you know I, I don't have any issue with being around some people that aren't cool and kind of choosing not to associate with them mm-hmm. it's more just the the structure of 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 that school and a lot of school you know now now that i have some distance from it and some time spent you know um say doing a workshop at, at a, or a master class at various colleges and kind of seeing the environment, you know, I think it's an issue in a lot of places mm-hmm. where it's, uh, you know, the teachers aren't treated well, students aren't treated well. The system is kind of set up to, to create this illusion that, you know, I guess you're going to go to music school and then you're going to graduate and you're going to be, you're going to take over the world. Yeah. Or, yeah. or even just, I mean, even just trying to tell you that somehow you're going to be a, a full-time musician i mean that's just such a small percentage sure and i think if we all kind of look at that reality we can deal with that in creative ways and and still find validity in in choosing to study music but you can't you know i mean there's so much in what you just said to to talk about and unpack one one thing i want to ask you is when you think back to that period of time were you able to put your finger on it as you as you just explained to me, or was it just a general sense of feeling crummy all the time? I, I was I was at, at first it was it was like an overwhelming disappointment, yeah, um, and sadness because I I really only speaking for myself. I mean, I was so enthusiastically open to just I, I didn't come being like I'm gonna I'm gonna take New York by storm. Right. Or like I came in really I I wanted to be the worst musician in the band. I wanted to learn. Sure. I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to get my ass kicked. I wanted to have my mind blown. And I was really open to just, you know, experiencing that. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm coming here. I'm, I'm the next Tony Williams or whatever. Um, and so when you, when you take that from a young person and you, and you apply your own... <laughs> disappointment and bitterness and yeah, sorrow just downloaded you, onto them and yeah. i mean it, it's really i mean not to be dramatic about it but that's especially now being older and having some people that have studied with me or you uh-huh. know you just talk to people after gigs or you know if you play at a university you know music students or whatever, it's like that's that's kind of unforgivable i would agree do you know what i mean like i, I know exactly I, it's I, like a teenager that has like so much pure love uh-huh. and it's just like my life has turned out pretty shitty, so let me let me just lay that on you. you know, when I you're mean, coming to me with this, you know what I mean? I, I might be completely wrong in saying this, but I feel like a component, a pretty common and necessary component of a good musician is a heightened level of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. People that really want to kind of go within and, and pull something, you know, look within and then realize this creative thing, you know, using the skills that they've been taught, like, these are going to be sensitive people. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I would I would say it is incredibly inappropriate and based in mean spiritedness to, to to 
put that onto these fucking kids. Mm-hmm. And I would go beyond that to say, like, to look at the people, because I know, I've known people like that. We might yeah. even be talking about the same person or people, but right. who, like, was your life that bad? Right. Like, you're universally acknowledged as, like, a master. Like, you live, you know, you're living pretty comfortably. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm completely out of my element for saying that, but, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's unforgivable. Yeah. Um, and, and I think even if you've had a really difficult life, as I'm sure a, a lot of those people have, it's still that's not that's not the outlet for your you know negativity that's right. or, or your sorrows. And in some ways, if you if you interact with that energy, it can really be you can really inspire that young person, but you can also be unlifted, but uh, uplifted by their kind of pure joy i know i am Mm -hmm. you know i know that when i uh you know like i was just up at uh dartmouth last week teaching for a couple days and just being around those students that are really enthusiastic and it was very inspiring to Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. you know like genuinely yeah it's moving just like oh yeah you guys are asking questions and and like discovering stuff for the first time, like your excitement at like playing this monk tune for the first Mm -hmm. time. Like I want, I want some of that feeling. You want to, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm talking to them about it and, and playing that music with them, but I'm also getting so much from them because like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm really excited about this as well. Mm -hmm. You know, even now, but, um, you know, I, I, I well, I'll say that. I remember when I first moved here, the first guy, the first musician that I met, and we're still friends, is Jamie Saft, the keyboard mm-hmm. player, piano yep. player. And I remember him telling me in our first hang, he was like, "Look, man, you seem like a good guy, and I just want to let you know, like, be prepared to eat a lot of shit. You know, people, <laughs> people can be pretty mean spirited at times, and like, don't take it personally. Just accept right. that that's the role you're in right now. And I'm so glad he said that to me because it wasn't long after that. Uh, I won't say who this guy was, but I played a gig and on the bill I'd played with this older musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw the guy like uh, 10 days later on another mm-hmm. gig. I said, hey man, how's it going? You know, good to see you again. And he goes, mm-hmm. do I know you? Right. And I said, yeah, we we uh, played that same thing at the thing. And, and he goes, man, that was like 10 gigs ago and he walked away. Oh God. And it hurt, it felt like someone punched me in the fucking chest. Yeah. But I was, I, I was so thankful to kind of have that bit of knowledge of like, oh, this is what Jamie was talking about. Yeah. People are gonna like. Put See, that- I didn't. I didn't show up ready for that because I was so fortunate to have such positive mentors in my life before moving to New York. Yeah. So I, I first started studying with Joyce Kaufman, who she was amazing, and then she recommended me to her teacher at the time, which is Alan Dawson, who I'd love to speak about. Yeah. At some point, and so he was incredible, and he was. What's What's interesting is that he was a master musician and a master teacher, and as a kid when that's like your second teacher, you just think that everyone is like that. Uh-huh. And what I've realized now is how rare that is to be a master of both. So what was it about studying with Alan Dawson or about Alan Dawson in particular that uh, that was so meaningful or successful in his approach? Um, God, where do I start? I mean, I you know, Joyce, I had been playing drums for, for a few years. I think I just graduated to a, a drum set from the basketball and squeaky mm-hmm. cheese and um and she was moving and, and my mother said well who should he study with you know again it's it wasn't like you could just look up drum teachers in the area she said well let me let me see if my teacher will take him on he doesn't usually teach kids but let me see so 
she asked him, he said, yeah, come for one lesson and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll take it from there. I went in for a lesson. I think I was 10 years old and he said, all right, I'll see you next week. And I studied with him, um, until I was 18, you know, until, until he passed. And, um, I don't think that it was, I know that it wasn't that I was an exceptional Mm -hmm. (laughs) drummer at the age of 10, Mm -hmm. but I was serious and I was respectful. And I think he just wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to have to, you know, babysit some kid Mm -hmm. bouncing off the walls. The thing with Alan was he was unquestionably a master musician who, you know, played with everyone and played on. Yeah. Just that's unquestionable but he really took teaching as seriously he really had uh, a method that he was working with that that really would give you a complete kind of three-dimensional approach to playing music as a drummer and so it was and so it was very organized it was very disciplined and he um he, you know, it was old school and that it's not like everything I did. He was like, that's great. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good job. So you had to earn it, but he also didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like he believed in like tough love or something mm-hmm. like that. It was, it was very matter of fact. And in that way it was very respectful and you know, he never talked down to me as a, as a kid. Like I like I like to tell. He treated you like an artist. Yeah. Yeah. And I like to tell this story, like, every time I'd go see him play, you know, I'd be 10, 11, 12 years old, and I'd kind of sheepishly go up to him on the set break just to say hello, and he would introduce me to Bobby Hutcherson. Oh, shit. And he would say, uh, Bobby Hutcherson? Tomo Fujiwara. Tomo Fujiwara? <laughs> Bobby Hutcherson. Yeah. And it would just be very, there was no irony. It was very matter-of-fact. He treated everyone with with respect and uh you know it wasn't like you didn't like pat me on the head and be like oh bobby this is this little <laughs> kid i'm giving some lessons to and like you know and then bobby would be like oh how you doing little boy or yeah. whatever it was just he just did that and uh there was just a lot of stuff in his presence that i that i got that i realized i got after the fact uh-huh you know and um there was never a sense of him like withholding information like oh no, I mean I gotta. Was like, my shit? I can't give you. I can't give you this. I'm not. Yeah. He was very open in, in giving me, you know, all the knowledge that he had, and he had a real system of of teaching and uh, a real respect, a real respect of others, a real self respect. He carried himself with a lot of um, dignity and. You know, I think most of that stuff you don't realize at the time as such sure. a young kid, but it definitely was very was a big influence. And the 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 public school drum teacher, uh, a drummer by the name of Keith Gibson, he was also extremely positive, encouraging. Um, and my high school band teacher Bob Ponte. So I just had all these He's- incredible people, and you don't realize it when you're when you're young i mean you realize that these are special people in, in in your life but you don't realize how rare that is yeah and so for me you know coming here for school yeah it was it was a shock um i'm glad i learned the other side of the coin yeah um but yeah you kind of learn how 
you know, through those experiences, you learn how you want to be as a person, how you want to, you know, be as an artist, treat your fellow artists, you know, just treat people in general. With respect. Yeah. Yeah. Conduct yourself with a bit of integrity. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I remember specifically uh, my stepfather that raised me. Like when I first began, like, you know, when he first kind of came on the scene, mm-hmm. it was the first time that I'd seen a grown man behave the way that you just described. Mm-hmm. You know, treat people with dignity, with respect. Uh, he was very dedicated to his work. He did incredible work. You know, he, before he died, he made, you know, objectively an indelible mark on this world. Right. Um, and everyone that knew him, you know, would agree with that so emphatically. And that became, for the first time in my life, I saw, oh, this is how a grown man behaves. Right. Um, and the way I felt around him, just like you described, um, you know, I keep a picture up there of Suzanne Fiol. I don't know if you ever knew her, but she, you know, started Issue Project Room, which oh, yeah. at one time was a mm-hmm. different place. <laughs> um, but she used to, you know, she when I first moved here, she let me do the door at Issue and take tickets and shit. And yeah. she would always take me out. I was like 21, 22. After um, the shows at, at The Hang, Mm-hmm. These people who I was like in absolute awe of. And she would always say, this is Jeremiah. He's a great composer, great musician. And yeah. she'd be introducing me to like Mark Rubeau and yeah. Anthony Coleman. And like, it was just, yeah. it made me squirm when she would do it, you know, but. It, but she knew what she was doing and yeah. she knew how, it's re- yeah. the effect it would have on you. Yeah. I, I mean, going back to something you said, like it, it, it really is unforgivable because when young people are developing, when young people are, because they don't know who the fuck they are. They don't even know what their bodies are doing. Right. You know, right. these kids are like just out of puberty. Yeah. You know, it, it's really a, a sensitive time that can make or break people. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. So when did you, so you're in New York, you're 17, you're feeling disenchanted with what you would come here thinking was going to be this, you know, something other than it was. Who did you meet or who did you start hanging around with or... Where did you start hanging that you got back in touch with the positive aspects of it? Well, I think that that while, you know, my experience in school was was overall, you know. Did you finish? I did. Yeah. I got out of there early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was done when I was 20. Jesus Christ. And I haven't been in a classroom <laughs> since. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, you know, the flip side of that is that I met, you know, being in New York and being in school, I met a lot of musicians and I met. You know, so I so I really got that positivity from a lot of my peers. Yeah. So I just started, you know, playing with my peers and, you know, having those great listening sessions that we've all had mm-hmm. where you just sit around for hours and listen mm-hmm. to music and you're so inspired and, you know, and then maybe you go and you play some music and you channel this yeah. amazing inspiration. And, and so that part was really great because... There was no shortage of musicians, and uh, I made some great friendships, you know, with musicians and and friends that are still close to me, um, and and I learned a lot from my peers. Yeah. So that was that was a great learning experience too. You know, even even musicians that had been in New York a couple years longer than me. Uh, you know that when you're when you've been in New York two months and someone's been in New York two years, that's like a lifetime. Yeah, they're like experience. a seasoned old time. Yeah, yeah, they're just like, wow. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about you've had a gig. Like what? Okay, well, uh, what's a gig? You know, like, wait, you're on, you're on a CD. Yeah, like, exactly. I, it's wrapped in plastic. I can <laughs> right. go buy it. Right. Yeah, 
and so so you know I, I, there was definitely no shortage of learning opportunities so i'm i'm definitely thankful for that and so i i didn't you know i was very i became very jaded and bitter about the school experience but that didn't that never my my love for music or wanting to learn more about music and get better at playing music it never, never wavered never yeah. wavered i never um and in, initially i was going to go to music school just for one year that was going to kind of be my like quote unquote you know year abroad or or year All off right. and uh and even after that horrible year i knew with 100% certainty at that point if not before that this is what i wanted to do right cuz it wasn't you know it's it's not like when you lay it out on paper it's not the safest path to take no you know and uh i was i was a pretty good student so i had an opportunity to to go to some you know quote unquote good schools and get a good job after school so it was you know i i had i remember i had a a, a guidance counselor who was really great really passionate about his about his job and and you know i, I really i really trusted him and and he leveled with me. He said, I, I can tell how much you love music and how much you want to do this. You know, and at this point I'm 15, 16 years old. And he, but he's like, you know, you have an opportunity to go to some of these schools and, 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 you know, get a job and have a life that's going to be maybe a little more comfortable than potentially what this is. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's my job to let you know that and to really, you know, make sure that you, that you're willing to make these sacrifices and you're willing to, to kind of take these risks. And I think at that age, I, I knew it like in the back of my head that this is what I wanted to do. But, you know, I also, there was also this voice where it's like, well, I don't want to do something stupid and, mm-hmm. and ruin my life or miss out on opportunity. So it's kind of like, all right, let me try it for a year and then see what it looks you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that even though I had such a terrible time in school, I had had enough of, a positive experience just being a musician around all these great and inspiring musicians that that I said I, I have to I have to see where this goes mm-hmm. you know I have to I have to I have to hang in there and 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 be willing to make these sacrifices too I also had to kind of really look inside myself and say okay am I willing to not make as much money as I might make doing something else or or not live in as big a place as I could mm-hmm. in some other city or I mean, not I, I, you know, do people, I, I mean certainly like I have things that I covet and desire and I mm-hmm. always have you know mm-hmm. generally they're, I, I've never ever once been the kind of person that's like oh, I gotta have like the biggest house it was never like the biggest house yeah. but I mean it was like but that is a thing for people sure I'm like I, I got my 800 square feet here right. this is my 40 acres right you know my mule she's in France right now but she'll be back soon <laughs> No, I I don't I don't think it was like, you know, giving up the good life, but I think it was giving up something a little more maybe a little more of an established path yeah. of like a you know, and a what, salary sure. and health insurance and right. Yeah. You know, it was it was just kind of looking at it from a very practical sure. standpoint because also at that time there were no, you know, I was not I was not like some whiz kid getting all these, you know, where it's just like, oh yeah, well I'm, 
I'm the young hotshot and everything's looking right. good right now. Yeah. It was like, you know, there was there was absolutely no reason to believe that that I would be a full-time musician. Yeah. No reason. I mean, I loved it. I worked hard, but like I wasn't like winning any talent competitions or I wasn't, you know. When did you first meet Taylor Hobino? I met him in high school. You guys went to high school together. We did not go to high school together, but we he 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 grew up in Brookline. Um and he went <laughs> he went to music camp with the bass player that was in my high school ensemble and Taylor was doing a tribute to Miles Davis as a teenager as a teen Taylor was of course he was Taylor was super hip yeah very early on yeah 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 always been super smart yeah i mean he was he like his i mean talking about learning from your peers i mean even in high school like i learned about like like we would do gigs and I was like, who's this Wayne Shorter that we're playing all his music? Like he knew all that stuff. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm there like playing like Aerosmith and he's like, oh yeah, Bitches Brew and yeah, uh, yeah. Speak No Evil. And I'm like, right. what? You know? <laughs> and then you look back, you're like, oh man, I should have just like, I should have just, you know, sat in his room every day after school and listened to his CDs. Right. But, um, so he did a Miles Davis tribute and, um, he asked the the bass player that was that he went to camp with that was in my high school to play, and then he said, "Do you know a drummer?" And so he said, we'll "Get get Toma." So we yeah. we met we met in high school, and then Taylor was uh, he worked in an ice cream shop. That's the other thing. Taylor's also been super, always been super active and super proactive, and so he worked in an ice cream shop, and he had a concert series at the ice cream shop as a teenager. As a teenager, right. I mean, right. are you surprised? No, but it's a funny image. Oh, yeah. Of t- well, you should have seen him. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> he was a funny image. Love you, Taylor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, I, I, uh, you know, my first job was at an ice cream shop because oh, I really? wanted to pay for something that I wanted really badly. Uh-huh. Uh, I was 13, and I got a job working at Baskin Robbins. And But my take on it, I wasn't doing what Taylor did, which was like, oh, yeah, there's a thing I really care about. Let's book music here. Me and my buddy that I worked with were like stealing whippets and like, you know, doing as little work as possible right. and like sitting in the parking lot throwing fucking rocks at cars. No, I think Taylor was super responsible. That's what I'm I think he had like the keys to the ice cream yeah, shop. Yeah, key holder. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and he did a concert series there. And uh, so then we played some and, uh, and then we reconnected because he was in New York for a year. A semester or a year during college and we reconnected and then from that point on we've always been playing regularly together yeah and, and it's all, crazy anyway. i mean you've got this like light almost lifelong thing now yeah no he's 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 family and yeah you know aside from all of the music that we've played together i mean i've learned so much from him and uh and yeah you just you just yeah. grow you grow up together you yeah know? you know I, I mean i didn't I didn't grow up with siblings, and so I, you know, a lot of my close friends are, are that I've known for a long time. I mean, I have friends from the third and fourth grade, mm-hmm. you know, that were st- still super close. I mean, those are my that's that's family, especially growing up uh, as the son of immigrants, where the rest of the family is in other countries, another faraway place. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, um, but yeah, we've been doing it ever since so you you put out your first record under your name not that long ago what five years ago 
Well, exclusive. I guess. I, mean, I know you were making stuff with Taylor. You guys were mm-hmm. making duo records and mm-hmm. stuff, but like a record of your music. So I, I started a quintet just about 10 years ago, a little okay. less, uh, called The Hookup. And mm-hmm. so that the first album, we've done three albums with The Hookup, and the first one came out maybe 2010. Mm-hmm. So that was the first one. There's been three of those. Uh, Where did you learn band leading from? Hmm. Probably, you know, mostly from other band leaders that I worked with. I yeah. think I, I think I've been lucky that um, a lot of the band leaders that I've worked with for a long time are really on top. Like Taylor is a great band leader. Yeah. Mary Halverson is a great band leader. How so? Uh, they just. They just take care of they they, you know the thing about band leading is that you have to understand you know everyone wants to be like yeah you know we're musicians like everything's casual and like the hang and like we're in it for the music it's like no if you're a band leader you're a boss mm-hmm. you're a boss and you have employees mm-hmm. and if you don't want to look at it that way that's fine but that's something else then you're just like playing some music with your friends and like maybe you get a gig and it's like oh should we do this gig and that's fine but if you if you are trying to like my 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 goal was always to be uh a full-time musician mm-hmm. like again getting back to the liner notes reading about like charlie parker playing a bar mitzvah gig or whatever you know like <laughs> all my heroes like playing what you know uh ornette coleman doing r&b gigs walking the bar you know all that it's like okay you you you're a musician and you do whatever it takes to to play you like you have the music you want to make but this is also like your vocation mm-hmm. you know like you're a plumber you you fix as many toilets as <laughs> as are gonna is gonna pay the bills mm-hmm. and if you're a musician you do as many gigs as is gonna pay the bills that was my that was my that was my goal when I when I moved to New York so it's like wedding gigs or bar gigs or restaurant gigs etc cetera, etc cetera. so so when i get hired to to play with someone like i want to be treated like this is work mm-hmm. like the the creative and the inspiring stuff is going to happen naturally if we all come to it with that energy but there's all this stuff that happens to make a gig happen or a tour happen or a recording happen that needs attention and needs um you know needs hard work and and it's not fun and it's not not fun it's not very creative work it's not very creative work which is why like you know i don't think people realize when they decide to lead a band or even just like book a gig as a leader Mm -hmm. like there's a reason why everyone doesn't do it like it's fun to have your name up there and be like oh yeah this is my shit Mm -hmm. it's like well there's something that comes with it if you're doing it right Mm -hmm. And so I've been lucky that the people that I've worked with, you know, for a long time have take that very seriously. So they're organized. They make sure that the musicians are taken care of, not just financially, but their instructions are clear in terms of like, this is what we're doing. This is what we're playing. This is what time you have to be here. This is how we're traveling. How is this for you? Is this cool? And and they also expect a professionalism from the people they work with. Um, and so that's, you know, as a, as a sideman, that's something that I take very seriously is trying to be 
the best side man I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but so so I learned to be a band leader from you know from people like Taylor and Mary and Matsuno who who you know really make sure that that all aspects of the gig or the tour or the recording are taken care of mm-hmm. and um so that's something that I really try to do is 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 make sure that I'm taking care of all those little details so that people the people that are playing my music and playing in my band can hopefully be focused just on the music right. because they're not worrying about bullshit. yeah because I'm going to deal with the bullshit yeah. they can do the they can do the work that they're there to do and I'm also going to, if if I see some bullshit approaching, I'm going to make the decision that none of us are going to deal with the bullshit, yeah. as opposed to getting to that bullshit point and being like, "Hey guys, guess so what? guess what? We're all going to deal with some <laughs> Don't bullshit, have a place to stay tonight. right?" And you know, bullshit happens. Right. You you can't avoid it a hundred percent, but you can see, you know, I've been on in many of those situations where you're sitting in some bullshit in someone else's band you're like this could have like we, we should have seen this you should have seen this coming mm-hmm. from miles but it's away also like, you know what we were saying about ben goldberg earlier before mm-hmm. we hit record which is you know it's it's nice being on the road with him because he doesn't catastrophize things mm-hmm. you know things happen and he addresses them in the moment and it's you, you know like two people could deal with that same situation very differently one person could make you feel like you know you just got off a roller coaster Mm-hmm. And another person can make you feel like, oh, we just had to drive the extra five minutes out of the way. It's all good. Right. And that's actually, you know, that's a whole other thing is, is the collective thing. That's a very challenging balance, too. And when it works, at least for me, it's ideal because you're kind of sharing all responsibility. The tough thing is finding that balance that one person doesn't feel like they're taking on more than the other. And so the the... Um, regular group that I have with Ben is a collective called the Out Louds with me and him and Mary Halverson and that really works because everyone is equally dealing with not just the fun creative stuff mm-hmm. but whatever bullshit might come up or even not bullshit just the logistics that that just have to be dealt with Yeah, you know dealing with travel and hotels and fees and sound checks and uh so that was, you know, having, I guess last year was the first time we did some touring with that with Ben, or maybe it was two years ago. And I love touring with him, you know, like, right. like we were talking about, because it's just like, all right. So, but now this, the, the new project that you mm-hmm. have, the CD you just gave me, is a double trio mm-hmm. with some pretty bad dudes. Like Gerald's on it, right? Gerald is on it. Gerald Cleaver. Bad dude. Not to be fucked with. Not to be fucked with. Uh, like so, so you literally like you know we're like okay, let me take this thing, this band lady thing, uh, to the next level and deal with some seriously bad motherfuckers and more of them. <laughs> yes, let me just add to the the yeah. badness. Um, yeah, it was just a it was just a sound I I had in my head. I mean, kind of the what is it, two guitars? So it's two guitar. It's Mary Halverson and Brandon Seabrook on guitars, myself and Gerald on drums, uh, Taylor Hobinum on cornet, and Ralph Alessi on trumpet. Yeah, it's all like killers. It's killers. Yeah, it's uh, uh, and you know Taylor and Mary are probably the two musicians um, that I've played the most music with in yeah. my life. So we play together in all combinations of of groups. So I really want to 
lead something with them involved. Um, I had recently started a trio with Ralph and Brandon. Mm -hmm. We did a live a live album at at Barbez, and I was really enjoying that combination. And then I was just really thinking about kind of mirrored ensembles and mirrored instrumentation, but you know, from people that had really different approaches to their instruments. Yeah. Um, and for me, I mean, it's hard to like, you know, I don't like like top lists or the greatest or whatever, but for me, like Gerald is just kind of like, he's kind of the state of the art. <laughs> That's <laughs> very, I mean? yeah, I do know what you mean. And, uh, yeah. And, and so, what else can you say? You know, like I, I wanted to have another. The thing is, too, is though, is that the instrumentation was less the guy was 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 part of part of the the guiding guiding idea for this, but it was also the personalities. You know, it was also just if it didn't work out to be this double trio, I would still want these people in the ensemble mm-hmm. for their musical personalities. Um, I mean, I, I don't know Gerald. I've never met Gerald. I've never met oh, uh, really? Ralph either. Hmm. Uh, but if, I mean, I'm assuming that if they're like the other people in the band, that they're fine human beings. Absolutely. Which is why super fine. Yeah, super fine. <laughs> but I mean, that's what I want to be surrounded by. Yeah, I, I have. Yeah, just, I mean, that's that's very. I mean, definitely. The longer I play music, the more I realize, like, man, there are there are really some great musicians out there but but like they can also be you know some of them can really be pains in the ass and it's just not worth it it's, it's not, not it's just like yeah for these like 40 minutes that we're playing music it is really inspiring but jeez the, the but, but 23 it, hours and 20 minutes is just like come on it's really? yeah well you know it's that, that thing we were saying out there before hit record also where it was like you want to make a gig happen Okay, you're, you know, you're going to get a 50-minute set somewhere. You know, money will be all right. It'll be okay, you know. The motherfucking amount of work and oh, yeah. bullshit and email and and just hair pulling that require, you know, you better savor every second of that moment on the right. bandstand. Right. But also, yeah, that drive, yeah. you know, the two to eight hours between gigs. Yeah. That person next to you better be inspiring you off the bandstand as well. Yeah. And I and I and I wish I would you know maybe some people can turn that on and off. I'm kind of skeptical, but it's like speaking for myself. If someone is that is a pain in the ass, it's hard to just switch that off once yeah. you hit the stage and play. As yeah. much as what they're what is the sound and the artistry that they're producing, like you can't help but but remember like three hours ago that they were just being the biggest pain in the ass and it's kind of a shame you know what it is it's also at that point i'm like you know we've gone too far i still want to love your art so maybe it's better if i if i distance myself from that Mm -hmm. 23 hours right and i appreciate you as an artist when i can go and hear you and not have that other that other experience Mm -hmm. um so yeah that definitely plays in and 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 so with this double trio you know at least to this point there's there's none of that um there's none of that baggage Mm -hmm. and it's it's really great people 
really great artists. And so I kind of had this sound in my head that involved these people and I started writing music for it. And, you know, we rehearsed the music and did some gigs and recorded it. And I'm really, I'm super proud of it. And it's coming out on Firehouse 12. It's coming out on Firehouse 12. It's out on Friday, October 20th. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, yeah, I mean, that's, you can certainly ask for a lot more, but that's kind of all you can ask for is to just make something that you're proud of. And that feels like a personal, it's a, it's a, it's a personal statement. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't get caught up in like, who's the innovator or who's doing something. It's just like, if, if you, if you, if you're really trying to go for something personal and really tapping into, to that you know, those personal moments, then, you know, I can live with that. I can live with that being out there as, as, as a, as a representation of, of, you know, what I'm trying to express. Mm -hmm. And I hope, you know, I will say like, I I just want as many people as possible to hear it. I'm not trying to like win a popularity contest. (laughs) I just want people to hear it and react to it. And, and, and that, that satisfies me. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to listen to it. Thank you. Thanks for coming over, dude. Thanks for having me. It's good talk, this man. It's over. Damn fine drink. No, I fucked that up. Um, <laughs> this is good. Thank you, Toba. Okay, that was my conversation with Toma Fujiwara. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Um, Toma's a great guy, and his new record is is pretty badass. That's Mary back there, the great Mary Halverson on guitar. Um, check it out. It's coming out this Friday on Firehouse 12. It's called Triple Double. Tomo Fujiwara. Check him out online, tomofujiwara.com. And check out the 5049 website, 5049records.com. There's a lot of stuff there for you to dig into and, and enjoy. And uh, yeah, that's it. Um, we'll be back next week. Next week's a good one. And I look forward to talking to you then. Bye bye. <laughs>